You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, every week is a big week in Washington, but this one was big. The House Speaker is having trouble making the moves necessary to avoid a government shutdown. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian president, um, Volodymyr Zelensky was in town to urge continued American financial support, which is part of the budget drama un, un, engulfing Washington right now. Joining me now, um, back from parental leave, Yasmin Abutalib, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Yasmin, welcome back, and welcome back to First Look. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. Um, I mean, you've come back at a most incre <laughs> incredible time. So uh, let's talk about President Zelensky. Uh, he addressed the United Nations and then came to Washington for meetings at the Capitol, the Pentagon, and the White House, where a new $325 million aid package was announced. President, President Biden took the opportunity to clearly state that the U.S. was in it for the long haul and that the U.S. wasn't going to go it alone. Let's listen. And that's why, that's why we've begun the process of formalizing our long-term commitment to Ukraine security alongside the G7 and with other partners. And that's why we supported just and lasting peace, one that respects Ukrainian sovereignty and its territorial integrity. So Yasmin, in some sense, Zelensky accomplished what he needed to, no? He did. I mean, there was really never any question that the Biden administration was still behind Ukraine, uh, that they wanted to uh, rally support and and make sure that there are no cracks in the Western coalition. And in that way, he was very successful. There are no signs of uh, the Western coalition coming apart or any of those countries at least vocally expressing uh, any sort of discomfort with continued aid and weapons to Ukraine. But I think it's a little bit more complicated when you look at whether President Zelensky accomplished his goal when it came to maybe winning over some skeptical Republicans on Capitol Hill. Um, I think the threat has never really been the White House and whether Biden would continue to support him, but more so whether Congress would continue to keep appropriating billions of dollars um, and these weapons and economic aid packages. So let's keep talking about, about the Republicans because uh, they sent, Republican lawmakers sent the White House a letter opposing uh, President Biden's plan for an additional $24 billion in aid for, for Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky reportedly told members of Congress, quote, if we don't get this aid, we will lose the war. Um, Yasmin, will that shift any lawmakers thinking, and, and is there any serious danger, really, that the United States support is waning? I'm not sure that that is going to shift the Republicans who have been very vocal about their opposition to more aid. I think they're probably well aware of that dynamic, but their argument is that the this is not the U.S.'s responsibility and we've sent enough money and we need to focus on domestic matters at home. I think the other thing that's important to note about Republicans right now is they are struggling to pass uh, just a basic short-term funding bill. So there are real divisions within the party uh, over just the sort of basic functions of government, let alone trying to pass another $24 billion of aid for Ukraine. I don't think that there's a real threat that the U.S. suddenly cuts off aid right now. You know, I think it's important to remember that all Democrats support continued aid to Ukraine, um, and uh, many Republicans are, are still very supportive, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, 
uh, Michael McCall, the head of the um, House Foreign Relations Committee. So, I mean, there is still Republican support in really important places. And with Democratic support, this package, I think, will eventually get passed in, in what form and whether it gets watered down or there are concessions is another question. Uh, but I think there is a real threat in terms of you know the the divisions that exist in the Republican Party, I spoke with Senator Chris Murphy this week, who said, you know, the question hanging over the United States over whether they'll continue to support aid to Ukraine, not just through Congress, but who wins the presidential election next year, is weakening Ukraine's hand, and that Russian President Vladimir Putin is paying close attention to that. And because all these divisions are are so public, uh, that he maybe feels he can just wait it out. Um, uh, uh, President Zelensky's meeting with President Biden came a day after he ripped the United Nations, saying that it has, quote, aspirations to compromise with killers rather than save lives. Uh, how did that speech go over at the White House? I think, you know, the there is a lot of agreement that the structure of the UN Security Council doesn't make sense and is quite antiquated, and that Russia and China hold veto power. And so uh, you can't really have any uh, resolutions related to them. Um, and many human basic sort of human rights resolutions get voted down. I do think the White House was probably thought Zelensky went too far in the way he made those comments. Um, and it's not, there's been this ongoing tension uh, since the war in Ukraine has begun, where Zelensky is sort of calling on the United States and the rest of the world to do more. Um, and I think sometimes that uh, creates some tension in that, you know, the president and I think um, many leaders in Europe feel that they are doing a lot. And this really sort of heated rhetoric is not helpful in maintaining support for that cause. So I think, you know, maybe the, there was agreement over the general sentiment and some discomfort over exactly how it was worded. You know, the, this is uh, President Zelensky's second trip to Washington, if, if memory serves. Um, is there any rumbling at all of President Biden going back to Ukraine anytime between, oh, say, now and the November 2024 election? It's a great question. And I think it's something you can never rule out, especially because uh, the war in Ukraine and maintaining US support for it has been such a central tenet of President Biden's foreign policy. And, you know, I've spoken with some senior administration officials this week who have said, you know, they're, they're well aware that they face challenges in maintaining not just support on in Congress, but public support for the war in that the counteroffensive didn't uh, quite mount the gains that some people may have hoped and that they maybe need to do some expectation resetting with the public that this war is going to be a long, slow grind. So I have not heard any specific plans about President Biden going to Kyiv um, in the next year, but I wouldn't rule it out because that is, of course, is a very public show of support um, and maybe a reminder to people of the toll that it's taking on Ukraine. Um, and one more quick question, and I acknowledge right now that you might not even know the answer to this, but in those meetings that President Zelensky had with, um, with all of the Senate, and some House Republicans, including, from what I see for reporting, Speaker McCarthy behind scenes, how, any reporting on how um, uh, matter-of-fact or blunt he was with members of Congress about their public rhetoric questioning American financial support for the, for the war he's trying to win against Russia? 
So I uh, don't yet know what happened in those in those private conversations, but I think you can look to President Zelensky's public comments yesterday, where he said very clearly, if the support was cut off, that Ukraine was going to lose the war. And so, um, you know, I think he's been very clear that if the U.S. and the its Western allies look like they're wavering, Putin will sense an opening, um, and that it's really important to maintain. Uh, this public image that there is no crack in, in support for Ukraine and that it will continue uh, without issue. Otherwise, you know, I think he's well aware and has communicated that that just continues to weaken Ukraine's hand. All right. Yasmin Abu Talib, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you for, uh, well, coming back to first look, but also welcome back uh, to your duties at the White House with The Washington Post. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. Ruth, Megan, welcome back to First Look. Hi, Jonathan. Um, so I'm flipping. I'm flipping the script here. We're going to start. We're going to start by talking about um, the looming, impen impending almost certain 99.999% government shutdown. Um, this is for both of you. Um, this is not as terrifying, uh, this looming government shutdown, as say the debt ceiling crisis we went through earlier this year, but it is another act in, in the drama that is the speakership uh, of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Ruth, first you, then Megan, talk about the prospects of a shutdown from your, your perspective and what one would say what one would say about McCarthy's control over the House Republican majority? I'm trying to come up with the right adjective. And as I talk, I'm going to come up with one for the degree <laughs> of McCarthy's control or not. Look, this is a, you're completely right, Jonathan. The last crisis, you know, uh, about to go over a cliff moment that we faced was much scarier with the debt ceiling. This is a rodeo that we've been to many times before, and we've seen the government shut down for short periods or longer periods many times before. It's stupid. It's no way to run a government. It causes short-term damage to both um, recipients of government and employees in government, and long-term damage and that's completely unnecessary in terms of economic growth, but it is survivable. The question is whether, uh, and, and government will almost certainly shut down for some period and uh, even more certainly um, will manage to start itself up again. Uh, the real question is what that will mean for Speaker McCarthy's very tenuous, there's my adjective, speakership. and. It is on, it, it has been on the cliff's edge to, to get back to that cliff uh, really since the start of his speakership. And the problem for his opponents is they don't really have another alternative. And he, he is now in the position, very interesting position of kind of threatening them, you know, just bring it on and let's see what happens. So I guess we're all going to see what happens. Yeah, Megan would love would love your view and whether you know Speaker McCarthy is between a rock and a hard place. He has no good options, and all the options put his uh, grip on the speakership at risk. 
Yeah, look, I think that this is a symptom. I, I concur with everything Ruth says. This is moronic. There is just no reason for it. It's not going to achieve anything for anyone. It's just showboating um, by a Republican, the, the extremist members of a Republican caucus who have given up on the idea of Congress as a place where anything happens and see it more as like a trampoline that elevates you to higher office or at least elevates you to higher media attention. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the saving grace for McCarthy is who wants this job? Why <laughs> would anyone, or rather like who wants this job can get it, can do it. This, the fact is that the, the, you know, 10 years ago, or gosh, I'm old, 13 years ago when the, with the Tea Party and Obama, you know, you could, all of these theatrics you could write off as the naivete of people who were new to office and didn't understand that like you can't just get what you want in Washington by throwing a tantrum. There's a bunch of other people here and you have to get them on board. Um, but at this point, it's become just a constant problem for the Republicans that they don't actually want to do anything. They want to like tweet for their constituents. They want to be on C-SPAN getting clips talking about how tough they are. And they are achieving that unfortunately, at the expense of U.S. government. Yeah, given speeches that show, are shown on C-SPAN where you don't see that they're speaking to empty chambers. Um, so, the, the so Jeff Stein, our, our, our colleague, um, uh, post colleague, reported that uh, the White House doesn't, well, it doesn't want a government shutdown, but they firmly believe the public will blame the Republican-led House if there is one. I mean, Sure, I can see how that's true, but is that wishful thinking on the White House's part, Ruth? I don't think it's wishful thinking. I think it is true that anybody who's paying attention to this latest iteration, I love um, Megan's use of the word tantrum because the Republicans really have become the tantrum party, certainly House Republicans. Uh, anybody who's paying attention will understand um, where the fault lies. The question is, whether that in itself is a motivating factor for voters. They are probably more apt to blame the administration fairly or not for high gas prices or for a high price of milk at the grocery store and vote according to that on the basis of that than they are to say, well, these House Republicans can't govern, so we're going to vote them out of office. I, I'm not really sure, especially because this has become sadly business as usual, that uh, even if there is blame to go around, that that blame will end up having political consequences. You know, part, part of the shutdown drama involves uh, funding for Ukraine. Pre his president was in town yesterday. He spoke to the Senate, denied the opportunity to, to speak to the House. Um, Megan, sh should, the, should the Ukrainian people view that as a sign of weakening American resolve in its support? for their nation. Look, I think that we know that there is a faction of the Republican caucus that is skeptical of Ukraine, just in part because they're skeptical of anything that Joe Biden does. It's not, you know, he, Ukraine could be, they, there are some real reservations. Can, can Ukraine win this war, right? Um, but that's not really what's happening at this point. What's happening at this point is that people are, that Republicans are just kind of reflexively oppositional on a bunch of stuff. Um, and I think also that this has gotten mixed up with Afghanistan and the Iraq war and 
the way that Republican critiques of those evolved, you know, of their own party, not just of, of Democrats. Um, and, you know, so it's weird when you talk to people like they act, you will talk to people who are Republican voters and they will kind of talk as if we are sending troops to Ukraine, which we are not, right? Mm -hmm. We are sending money, but we're not sending so much money that, that this is going to bankrupt the U.S. government or severely impair domestic uh, priorities. Um, but there is, I mean, there is a kind of actual broad native skepticism, but then that is piled on top of um, the, the general opposition to anything the Biden administration does. And I think that those two things, we've known about that, right? This is not news. It's not a surprise. I think... Um, the sense is that McCarthy wants to do this, but he needs to find a way through his caucus. And that's, I think, true of a lot of things. <laughs> Thank you. Walk over hot coals would be uh, preferable, I, I think. You know, Ruth, Senate Republicans are in line with Senate Democrats and President Biden when it comes to aiding Ukraine. In the end, does this mean the U.S. support of Ukraine will be secured eventually? Probably eventually, but I want to go back to something that Megan said, because I do agree that there is reflexive oppositionism to anything that comes out of Joe Biden's mouth or the Biden administration. But I think it actually is a problem that we see among House Republicans and among a faction of the, uh, Republican voters that actually goes deeper than that. And that is, this is no longer Ronald Reagan's party. Ronald Reagan. Um, believed in confronting the evil empire. The empire is gone, but the evil remains. We saw that with the invasion of Ukraine. And Ronald Reagan Republicans and Ronald Reagan's Republican Party would have been leading the charge as some Republicans and put the Senate minority leader in that camp as some Republicans appropriately and impressively do. But this kind of um, America does not have a role in the world to promote and protect democracy and to stand up against uh, outrageous aggression on the part of Russia is a new and disturbing development in the Republican Party. It will out, I am worried that it will, it is not just about Joe Biden. It will outlast Joe Biden. And it's really a problem for America. To, it could be a problem for America to maintain its important role in the world. Um, before I go to my next question, Megan, do you have any, any thoughts on that broader um, thing that Ruth just mentioned. I mean, cosine. Uh, I think I, I am indeed worried that the, that there is a faction of the Republican Party that just does not want to take the role on the world stage. That that the world actually, I think, you know, I I was a kid of the '90s, and so I came up thinking like, well, we won the Cold War, it's over, we don't need uh, America as a superpower anymore. And I think the rise of China and Russia has shown that we need it more than ever in some ways. Um, and that the Republican Party is no longer ready to stand up for that role. You know, back in my day, it was Republicans who were the people who made that case forcefully and Democrats who were like, well, couldn't we just, you know, tend our own garden? Um, and it is disappointing for me and I think uh, worrisome for me that mm -hmm. to, to watch that happening to the Republican Party. You know, can I come back, <clears throat> come back to um, a budget question here? Um, because I'm reminded that also what's at work here in terms of it's not just Ukraine aid for Ukraine that's a stumbling block into you know getting you know meeting a, the budget deadline of October 1st, but some Republicans are taking this principled stand that they don't want to vote for a continuing resolution because that's not how 
things should, that's not how things should be governed. And then on the other side, but when it comes to, but they, and they wanna do a, a budget, but they're going against the, the agreed upon deal that got us from, you know, got us from going over the cliff with the debt ceiling by really ramping down uh, government funding. Is this principled opposition to, to continuing resolutions, it, does that make any sense? Ruth, I'm gonna throw that to you before we go to more serious topics. Well, well, really quickly, um, if you're going to have, there is a principled opposition to be had against continuing resolutions. I'm a very big believer in regular order and the budget process and let's pass individual appropriations bills. But uh, the time to have that concern and act on that concern is when there's enough time to get this done and not at the edge of a government shutdown and not at the cost of a government shutdown. I'm just gonna, since I'm talking, wanna take the opportunity to say one more thing about Ukraine, which I think is really important, which is uh, President Zelensky makes a very powerful point when he says that Ukraine will lose the war if it doesn't get these weapons and this funding. But the problem that he has is he can't say the converse. He can't say Ukraine will win this war if it gets X. And that's the problem as this conflict, which we thought was going to be over in a matter of weeks as Russia seized Kyiv. Thank goodness it didn't. Um, but as this conflict drags on, it is both worrisome and understandable that people are going to say, how does it end? And when does this end? And show us an end that is a win. And that's the challenge um, primarily for Ukraine, but also for those in the U.S. who support the funding. Mm -hmm. All right, hard pivot here to the 2024 presidential election. We don't have a lot of time, and I really do want to get to one really serious topic after this one. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Megan, last Friday, Donald Trump gave a speech where he seemed to think he ran against President Obama in 2016, not Hillary Clinton, who was his actual uh, um, opponent. And the Wall Street Journal editorial board criticized him for not debating. The question here is, why won't he debate? And, and is it really because he has a substantial lead in the race for the Republican presidential nomination, or is he scared? What should he debate, right? What what does he get out of it, right? Now, look, we could say that you should do this because this is part of our civic norms, but I mean, we're talking about Donald Trump here. Why there is no personal benefit to him, right? He is a massive lead in the polls. The only thing he can do at a debate is lessen his lead. There is no way he's going to improve by going on stage and beating the, the heck out of one of his competitors or risking getting beaten by them. And so I think it is sadly rational. I wish that that were not the case. Um, and I think that obviously is a kind of idealistic matter he should debate, but he's not going to because it doesn't benefit him. There's just no electoral upside for him. Uh, Ruth, isn't the other danger for him that he'll, he, he'll perjure himself <laughs> on the debate stage? Well, not not perjure himself on the debate stage, well, but yeah, maybe say Sorry. the maybe say a truth that will end up being used against him in a court of law. I think that for Trump is a minor aspect of what is a very sad to say canny strategic decision, as Megan said, not to you know to sit on his lead and not to risk it and. You see the Wall Street Journal editorial page. You see former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie trying to taunt uh, Trump into taking the bait and turning up. I don't see that happening because um, Trump, sad to say, is too smart for that, even though 
of course, for the interests of democracy, uh, he should debate. Right. And, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, you cannot perjure yourself on a debate stage, but you can perjure yourself uh, in a court of law. All right, I'm gonna go rogue here with this last with this last um, question because neither of you know I'm gonna ask this, nor does the control room. But, so apparently <laughs> Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer changed the rules, um, the dress code for, for the Senate. You both know me, I, I prefer to see people you know, nicely dressed, but I can't get as exercised as I thought as I thought I would over this rule change. I would just love for you each in the less than four minutes that we have left. Just just your thoughts on, you know, was it the right thing to do or a dumb thing to do? Does it lessen? Does it less cheapen the institution, or has the institution done already done that all by itself? Megan, you go first. So I think a few things. One is that, it, you know, like the things that we now think of as like formal business attire is actually what was known as the college look a hundred years ago. And people decried the loss of stiff celluloid collars, you know, in favor of these soft, comfortable clothes. So this is a process that has been going on for thousands of years where we change what we wear and old people are like, this is terrible. The second thing I think is that obviously this is a concession to Fetterman. But I mean, I will, and, and you know, people who have strokes who are cognitively fine may struggle with fine motor control tasks like doing buttons, right? And, you know, I think maybe the answer was to give him a, uh, like a special pass. But I think the thing I would note is that the staffers will have to show up in suits. And that to me is actually kind of a problem, right? You should not be setting higher standards for your junior employees than you are setting for the people who are in charge of making the laws of the land. And if John Fetterman cannot wear a suit to, uh, to the Senate, then I think no one should have to. I think there is a broad shift towards informality that was really accelerated by the pandemic. We all learned we like slopping around in our, our, our leggings and our sweatpants. Um, but if, that, if we're gonna make that shift, then it should be a democratic shift that, that puts the people in higher office, not with special privileges, but you know, you know, first among equals, as it were. A small d democratic um, shift is yeah. is what you mean. And I just want to state for the record, every day during the pandemic, I showered, shaved, put on cologne, and got dressed and went right to the den. Ruth. <laughs> wow. Well, you win. Uh, look, I am not pro dress code, but I am pro dressing appropriately. I think it's, we don't have a dress code that I'm aware of at the Washington Post, but oh. when I go into the office, I'm not going in in my pajamas. Um, though I have seen some pretty relaxed dressing there, which oh, yeah. doesn't necessarily sit so well with me. Uh, I think it's very odd that this august body, the world's greatest deliberative body, cannot trust the gro supposed grown-ups who work there to understand and decide for themselves what is appropriate dress. At the same time, I do not cotton to Senator Fetterman or anybody else, staff or senator, coming in looking like a schlub. When I woke up this morning, I got out of my pajamas. I'm not even wearing the proverbial pajama bottoms. I'm wearing perfectly appropriate bottoms. I put on makeup. I brushed my hair. I didn't quite get to the K-part level of grooming, but few of us do. Um, I don't understand why they cannot decide for themselves and meet, you know, de minimis, perhaps not, you know, Downton Abbey levels of dress uh, 
but appropriate levels of dress for the modern world. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of sad commentary on where we are. I would be willing to endorse a dress code if they all had to show up in Downton Abbey level, like, you know, the gray trousers, <laughs> the cutaway coat. I think that that would be appropriate and, and set a good example for the rest of the country. Look, you, you, you know what? That is that I would love to serve my country by coming up with the, 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 uh, the guardrails for you know, the appropriate dress for, for people who work on Capitol Hill from elected members of Congress right down to, right down to the interns. Because I'm afraid if you don't put some kind of guardrails and rules, if you just say, come as you are, Lord help us. Ruth Marcus, Megan McArdle, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.